0: Hello and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Ben Hall, Europe Editor, and I'm filling in for Gideon Rackman, who's away on leave. In this week's podcast, we are talking about the Netherlands, its political landscape after last week's general election, and its changing role in the EU. My guest is Luc van Middelaar, a Dutch historian, former EU official, and author of an acclaimed book, Alarums and Excursions, about how the EU improvised its way through a series of crises in the last decade. The Netherlands has often been at the forefront of political trends in Europe, from the emergence of the populist far-right to the collapse of social democracy and political fragmentation. There are now no fewer than 17 parties represented in the Dutch Parliament. So what do the Dutch hold in store for European politics? The Netherlands is one of the countries most affected by Britain's exit from the EU, and not just because of its close trading links. Amsterdam has emerged as one of the big winners as capital market activity shifts from the City of London to the Eurozone. With Britain out, the Dutch have come to the fore as the staunchest defenders of budgetary restraint and open markets in the EU. As the ringleader of the EU's so-called frugal countries, Mark Rutte, the veteran Dutch Prime Minister, fought hard last year against a common EU recovery fund that would dispense aid to pandemic-stricken states as grants rather than as loans. If the South um, is needing help uh, from other countries in terms to cope with the crisis, I understand that, eh,
1: because there is limited scope uh, to deal with that uh, financially themselves, then I think it is only reasonable for us uh, to ask for a clear commitment to reforms. And if then loans have to be converted to a certain extent to grants, then the reforms are even more crucial
0: and the absolute. Rutter famously turned up to battle with fellow EU leaders bearing an apple and a biography of Chopin, a display of his sang froid and his love of the piano. He eventually acquiesced to the recovery fund, but his status as the new Mr. No of the EU was sealed. Some worry that Dutch leaders are pandering to a latent Euroscepticism that threatens to make the Netherlands an increasingly awkward member of the European club. However, pro-European parties also did well in last week's elections, which may soften the Dutch position on some issues.
1: I'm pleased with the result uh, because uh, Mark Rutte did a fabulous job and I think uh, we trust him to do the same for the future. The challenges we face nowadays are not necessarily focused on the Netherlands, it's more focused on Europe and broader as a whole. So I hope that uh, Rutte will take that
0: into account as well.
1: (laughs) I was... uh, a bit surprised to uh, find that uh, Favour Day is still so big, but uh, I think that's a good, uh, good result.
0: Rutter's unflappable leadership is one reason why his conservative liberal VVD party won a fourth consecutive victory. He will become the longest serving prime minister in modern Dutch history and one of the longest serving in the EU. I started by asking Luc van Middelaar about the secret of Rutter's success.
1: At the heart of his successes, he is a rather pragmatic politician, and the Dutch like that. Rutte likes to talk about solutions to problems. He doesn't do visionary speeches. He doesn't do ideology. He sees his job of prime minister as managing the country. He does it well, and people like that kind of hands-on, also optimistic approach. And then there's this idea that he is a very normal politician, the Dutch indeed appreciate it, but it's also an immense political asset, the fact that his private life is so boring. It's a bit like Angela Merkel in Germany, who's going to the same holiday destination every year. So this
0: Rutter. that's in a way an asset for a, a long political life the Netherlands is in the pandemic like much of the rest of Europe. The Netherlands record has not been stellar. It's not been dreadful either. Uh, Was there no political fallout from this?
1: Hardly any. And you're right, it's surprising. But the question is, where do you go as opposition if you want to feel the campaign against government policy? Do you ask for stricter measures? Of course, that's really a hard sell politically, electorally. Or do you ask for lighter measures. And in a way, because there's so much uncertainty around this whole pandemic, even among the scientists, it's very hard for other political parties to position themselves. Well, there's one party which in this campaign did so, but they went really on the corona denial theme, including conspiracy theories, etc. And that was the party on the extreme right of Thierry Boudet, a party which was very low in the polls a few months ago, but in a way which rode on the wave of the uh, sentiment against the curfew, so they made a little bit of political money out of it and ended up with, uh, I think, around five percent of the vote. But that's about it, which tells you also something maybe about the lack of surprising lack of salience of this issue, and you see it in Germany, in in Belgium, in France, where it's Everywhere it's going very slowly with the vaccination in particular. And zooming out a bit, it's fascinating to compare with the success of Israel, of course, what we all talk about, the UK, the US. And in my view, what you see here in a country like, like the Netherlands and its neighbors, it's countries who have been in peace for two, three generations. Countries which have forgotten what it's like to mobilize your whole society for one single purpose. Well, obviously in Israel, they know how to do it, and to some extent also in the, in the UK. But in the Netherlands and in neighboring countries, there's all these tiny little interest groups and bureaucratic delays, which collectively make us unable to pull off a, an impressive vaccination campaign. But also at the same time, there's no
0: real complaints The big winners from the election were the socially liberal D66 led by Sigrid Kaag, a former UN diplomat. What's behind her success? Well, Sigrid Kaag is a strong personality. Her party is really in the
1: centre of the political landscape. You have two liberal parties in the Netherlands, right? Rutte's party, I would say the conservative liberals, the VVD, and the liberals of Kaag, D66. You could call them the social liberals or the progressive liberals. Now, what happened is that many left-wing voters who were afraid that the party of their first choice would end up in opposition rather gave their votes to her, to D66, knowing that that's a party which is in a way unavoidable in any coalition so that they would strengthen within the government the voice of those who want a more engaged European policy, who are softer on migration, who find climate more important. So this is one reason, in my view at least, why the left, the classic left, Labour, the Greens, uh, did not well at all, because a lot of their voters voted for K. Adding to that, of course, the fact that she is a woman, no doubt also attracted
0: a certain number of, of voters to vote for her. With Brexit, the Dutch have emerged as a much more forceful voice on the European stage for budgetary restraint, and they are staunch opponents of fiscal transfers within the Eurozone, you know, stronger countries helping out weaker countries. But Europe barely featured in this campaign, which is quite surprising given the strong stance that the Netherlands took last year, the big controversy over the EU recovery fund. Why did it not feature in the campaign? The parties in the centre
1: maybe avoided the topic because they are themselves divided. And within the Liberal parties, at least, at least the party of Rutte, Christian Democrats, Labour, they all have the pro-European and more anti-European wings, so to say. Now, don't you have the parties uh, more on the extremes, the really anti-European parties on the extreme right, in this campaign, they had other fish to fry. They focused on, on Corona and on migration and, and less on Europe because the big issues, and you just mentioned this Corona
0: Recovery Fund, were, were settled last year, so they were not Salient now. The far-right gains some ground in this election, and you mentioned Thierry Baudet's gains at the expense of Geert Wilders, but the presence of the far-right is now split between three parties in Parliament. Dutch Eurosceptic populism is perhaps overplayed by outside observers, but it has shifted the centre of gravity of Dutch politics to the right and created a, a latent Euroscepticism, which could prove hard to tame. How serious is the risk of the Netherlands becoming an unreliable, even a semi-detached European Union member? Well, I think
1: you say it well, Ben, in saying that this tends to be a little bit overplayed by foreign media. The extreme right is getting one out of six votes, perhaps a little bit closer to one out of five this year. Uh, that's a fairly stable volume they have received in the past 20 years or so. You're also right to say that it shifted the center of the debate, uh, in particular, Rutte's party and the Christian Democrats, let's say the center-right, the classic center-right parties, they really look to their right and they're more careful. And it explains, to a large extent, the very prudent European approach of Rutte. But I think if you zoom a little bit out, and again, you look at, at the neighbors, you look at France, look at Germany, you see the same political landscape emerging where you have three main currents. You have the center. In France, it's occupied by Macron, the bits of the classic right. In the Netherlands, this would be Rutte and Kaag, the liberal parties, the Christian Democrats. Now, left of the center, you have the classic left-wing parties. And right of the center, you have, let's say, the extreme right or the nationalist right, like Le Pen in France, like the AfD in Germany. So the battle really in all our countries is about and around the center. And well, you could say that the center has shifted a little bit to the right compared to the political landscapes of 20, 30 years ago. But still, I think it's an overall phenomenon. And it will therefore not really prefigure a detachment of the Netherlands from the European overall movements. It's very much part of it, both in political terms, but also economically. And I think this is one misunderstanding perhaps that people sometimes project too easily the image of Britain on the Netherlands, the Netherlands being the new outlier. And it's true to some extent in certain European debates that the Netherlands is taking up the role of the UK. But it is much more closely aligned economically ever since the Second World War basically with Germany. So the Netherlands is in Economic and Monetary Union, it's in the Schengen zone, it's at the heart of all European policies since the start, so it cannot politically or economically afford to confront Berlin or Paris head-on on on a number of issues. And the Dutch pragmatism, which Prime Minister Rutte embodies, will prevail in my view.
0: At the risk of asking another question about projecting British values onto another country, many people see the Netherlands as the standard bearer for open competitive markets now that the British have left the EU. But at the same time, the Dutch, it seems, are becoming more skeptical about free trade. They've been strong proponents of EU curbs on state subsidies to foreign companies, particularly from China, operating in the EU or sending exports here. And they are in favour of tough regulation of big tech groups. Are the Dutch becoming more French?
1: To some extent, yes. But that's not because the Dutch are becoming more French, but because the French have never stopped thinking about certain issues. And in particular, they have never stopped thinking about the importance of power and state power in international economic relations. And whereas the Dutch have always relied and preferred to rely on the idea of a free market, a rule-based order upheld by international institutions. In a way, they have been disappointed by that order in the same way as British voters have been, but that's, that's a different story. But I think it so happens that the departure story of the UK, or at least the 2016 referendum, coincided with the arrival of the Trump administration in the US, which also was undercutting, obviously, the multilateral trade system and also a much more assertive, very visibly aggressive China. And in a way the Netherlands has digested the message of a new geopolitical or geoeconomic, if you want, order and is adapting its trade policies. You can definitely see that whereas in in the past, whatever French economic initiative in the EU would be immediately discarded. By the Dutch as protectionist, there is now a debate within the Netherlands, as in the rest of the EU, about the proper balance between freedom and protection. You see that also now, obviously, in the current vaccine spat, but you see it in a lot of other issues as well. And, and the Netherlands are, again, a pragmatic nation, a trading nation, so it will always keep... An eye on, on the compass of, uh, of free markets, but also realising that uh, the world is changing and that without sometimes a bit of state intervention of power politics or of
0: reciprocity, to use another French term, you will not get what you want. You mentioned the vaccine spat. EU leaders this week are debating the merits of tougher EU restrictions on COVID-19 vaccine exports. Where do the Dutch stand on that very specific issue? The Dutch, in a way, they're a little bit reluctant to end up in
1: a tit-for-tat thing with the UK in particular, knowing that in this path there is also a Dutch factory, which is at the heart of the controversy, a Leiden-based pharmaceutical firm. So I think the pressure is coming more from a number of bigger member states, France and Germany, and also Italy. We're a bit fed up that the EU seems to be uh, naive and that it has exported, I think, around 10 million doses of, of vaccines to the UK while none have come the other way. And I think there is a fair case to be made to argue that the European Union too should apply a measure of reciprocity in making sure that it also can protect its own citizens. I'm not sure how Rutte will position himself at the summit on this issue. I think he will plead for moderation. Obviously, it's very important for the Netherlands economically to keep relations with the UK on a good standing. We're a close neighbour, after all. But this language of reciprocity, the idea that the UK is not exporting to us, so therefore there's no reason why we as EU should export to them, I think that he will be receptive to.
0: Your book, Alarums and Excursions, Improvising Politics on the European Stage, was very much about how the EU responded to a series of crises over the last decade. The Eurozone debt crisis, Russia's aggression in Ukraine, the migrant crisis. How do you assess the impact of the pandemic crisis on the European project? Well, that's interesting. In, In a way, it is accelerating
1: and pushing further a number of trends which I identified in the book and which I described as a transformation of the European Union from an institution which is doing basically rules, politics, and building a market to a political community dealing with crisis situations and also improvising sometimes and building new institutions. If you want to look at the perhaps three Major changes that the pandemic brought, or which had the most impact, I would mention the role of public opinion in this crisis, which was really different from previous crises, which often came along with a lot of top-down measures imposed on very reluctant public opinions. Think of austerity measures in the Euro crisis, etc. But in this crisis, in the pandemic, it was really public opinion that was. At the start of political change, it was Italians in distress and Spaniards which asked for EU solidarity a year ago now, more or less. And whereas the response at the start was a bit uh, legalistic, as in this is no EU competence, that has been overcome by the sheer power of that public call for action. And in a way, it is transforming, as you said, the European Union, at least in the field of health. A second theme which strikes me is that Europeans have experienced their own geopolitical vulnerability. We've seen Chinese mask diplomacy. There also was, at least under the Trump administration, a very surprising absence of American leadership. And so Europeans have experienced that they are alone in the world. This has accelerated the push for what in Brussels jargon they call strategic autonomy. So the idea that the European Union should be able to procure its own medicines, to be uh, more independent from the United States, to be more self-reliant. And I think that cannot be understood without the distressing experiences of uh, spring 2020. Now, the third one is Germany. The decision last year of Angela Merkel to go along with this Corona recovery fund with a money lent by you on the markets and with transfers of money, not only in terms of loans, but also grants to Southern Europe. That is a fundamental change of the political equilibrium within uh, the EU. Germany has positioned itself in the center. It's opening up to demands for solidarity to Southern Europe for observers uh, like you and me. It's a, it's a fascinating period and it, confirms a certain number of conclusions, uh, which you could already see happening in previous years.
0: And do you think the EU's flawed vaccine procurement process and the very slow rollout in Europe will do lasting damage to the EU's reputation and legitimacy? Or will we have all forgotten about it in a few months' time?
1: Well, I think it will do damage, definitely. And it, it also shows a certain number of weaknesses of a bureaucracy which has no experience with these kind of purchases. I suppose most public opinions are aware that there is many corporates and many, many parties to the story. There's the EU or the European Commission on the purchase side, but there's also all national and and regional and local governments and authorities on the side of the rollout of the vaccination campaign. And so nobody has been uh, very glorious or heroic in the EU here. And um, we will see uh, where that will lead to. But I do not think that this will seal the end of the European Union. Whenever things are are going wrong, people are predicting that the EU will collapse. It happened in the Euro crisis. It happened in the refugee crisis. After Brexit, we were going to have Frexit and Nexit and all the rest. So whenever uh, the going gets rough, there is a bit too many commentators, in my view, who predict the end and who underestimate, in a way, the resilience of the European Union, the invisible glue which holds that union together, both in terms of economic interdependence, but also in terms of political will in Berlin and Paris. It will leave scars, definitely, and people will remember this mediocre performance of all public authorities in the EU on this front,
0: but it will not be the end of the EU as such. That was Luc van Middelaar ending this edition of the Rachman Review. You can tune in next week to hear another of my able colleagues filling in for Gideon. I hope you'll keep listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rackman Review in all the usual podcast apps.